Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. There was a bully, Tommy, living downstairs in our tenement. He used to muster the boys in our gang against me. On occasion, Tommy and the gang ran my two brothers and me halfway up our back stairs. They were menacing us from our backyard. I yelled into our flat to my reclining dad, Dad, Tommy's picking on us. From the bedroom came the sleepy reply, Fight your own battles. In my mind, I said, To hell with you. I reject you. We developed a passive-aggressive relationship from then on. In essay, I formally repented of that rejection. I came out in San Francisco in 1971. I was to go through three male lovers. I never gave up the practice of my religion. My mother taught me to pray at her knee when I was about five, and I still kneel by my bed morning and night, even through my 11 years in the gay lifestyle. I continued to go to Mass, though I did not receive communion. Ninety percent of the men I knew in the lifestyle said, trying to keep chaste or sober is too hard. God's commandment, therefore, does not apply to me. I would kneel at night after a successful or unsuccessful night of cruising and say, Your commandment is written in stone, Lord, and in no I am breaking it. I cannot stop. I'm caught in an addiction. O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in time, he did rescue me. It's a miracle that I found a way out. After I broke up with my first lover, George, my loneliness seemed unbearable. One night, I went to a gay bar, telling myself I would go home with anyone who asked me. That led to an 11-year sick relationship with Judd. After the first few times, I put a stop to sex. I wanted companionship. I would come home from work and call to see if he'd be home. If he was, I'd quickly run over, relieved that I had company. If he was not home, I'd go out cruising. The only thing he could talk about was sex. I hated myself for hanging on to him. Eventually, I broke with Judd. It was scary to face being alone, but it was the beginning of the way up. In June 1982, I lost my job and my third lover at the same time. I was emotionally devastated. Never had I felt so unable to rebound before. I was scared. I sat in my prayer chair and prayed, God, I feel like a turtle on his back. I can't get up anymore. Although I had never heard of the 12 steps before, this amounted to step one. Then I said, but I know you're out there and you can help. That amounted to step two. Then I said, so I'm giving you this raw material pointing to myself. Do something with it. 
That amounted to step three. In reply, he said, I want you to start every day with an hour of prayer. That amounted to step 11. My image of God was based on my earthly father, a tyrant waiting for me to trip up so he could beat me. I said, God, that image of yourself just doesn't work for me anymore. In prayer, God gave me the following imagery. Picture a small meadow filled with various flowers, ringed with green bushes and trees. It's a balmy 72 degrees in May. Birds are chirping, a cow is mooing, a horse is neighing, butterflies are flying. I'm about four. In the middle of the meadow is a stump with a young virile man sitting on it. It's God, the father. He beckons to me. I stand on his lap and he puts his arms around me and while rocking me from side to side says repeatedly, my son, my son, I love you unconditionally, unconditionally. He says we can work around my earthly father. I would sit in that image for about the first 10 minutes of prayer. This amounted to my third reconversion to my faith. I'm still living the effects of that. For the six months of my unemployment, I'd start my day with prayer. Then I would use the book, What Color Is Your Parachute?, to determine my job skills. I'd sit at a typewriter and go over past jobs to do this. But relationships that needed forgiveness kept coming up. I tried to keep on the job track, but finally realized that maybe God wanted me to deal with the relationships. So I would stop and pray for a spirit of forgiveness. Then I'd go out looking for jobs, calling cold on architects. Finally, I found a job in St. Louis, to which I moved in January of 1983. The loneliness there was very painful, but it led to a greater love between me and my higher power. One good result was that it caused me to break with my Chicago gay friends. While there, I learned about Courage, an organization for people with SSA, same-sex attraction, who want to live chastely. I did a total surrender this time. I wouldn't have been lonely in St. Louis if I remembered to stay in my present moment. The last time I had sex with a man was in St. Louis on July 20th of 1984. The job there did not last. I moved back to Chicago in August 1984, where I got a sponsor in Adult Children of Alcoholics. Then I joined Al-Anon. I dropped 46 years of secrecy and shame about SSA at an all-men's Al-Anon group in Park Ridge. From there, by networking, I learned about SLAA, SAA, and finally, SA. On December 6, 1986, I started the first SA meeting held within the city of Chicago at St. Teresa's Church. Later, I was to found two others. I still had a problem with masturbation, though. By attending meetings, I realized that it was part of an unholy trinity. Being a workaholic, I would not take the time away from my job to arrange something to do on weekends. So when evening arrived on Friday, I tried to anesthetize my loneliness by watching TV. That wouldn't work, so I'd go out and buy a pound of gooey chocolate chip cookies, which I'd down in 15 minutes. That wouldn't work. Then I'd masturbate, get sleepy, and go to bed. The first thing I did to break the connection was to get rid of my TV. I did it one day at a time. Just for today, I will not watch TV. Then I got rid of the cookies. Then the masturbation. 
My sobriety date with masturbation is about July 20th of 1987. For a long time, I said nothing at SA meetings due to the shame of dealing with SSA. This kept me feeling second class. Finally, it seemed I could open up. To my amazement, no one ran or kicked me out. As I got sober, straight guys were actually calling me, asking my advice. One of these was Rich Kay, a young guy who was working an intensive program. We developed an accountability partnership. We altered the time of daily arising by 15 minutes. This time consisted of five minutes for his feelings, five minutes for mine, then five minutes to wrap it all up in prayer. I had never felt so intimate with anyone, and it was very satisfying. I felt very inferior about playing baseball, so I asked Rich if he would show me how to throw, bat, and catch. Every Saturday, we'd get together and do so. He said, you are far better than you led me to believe. I didn't own a TV for about 20 years. When I moved to Jacksonville, I did get one, but I am not plugged into the channels. I borrow DVDs from the public library. If they are R-rated, I want to know why, and especially if there's sexual content, but I avoid R-rated movies. I adopted a new way of relating to mom and dad. Mom was a very insecure woman. When dad proved a disappointment, she turned to me, the oldest of six, as a substitute husband. I call this emotional incest. The only display of emotion she tolerated from me was pity toward her. My own feelings were stifled and needed desperately to be dealt with. For several periods, I resorted to not calling or seeing her. During this time, I wrote letters expressing my feelings. It was the only way I could get my feelings out. If we were in a one-to-one conversation, she'd do her hurt feelings act, and I'd stop out of guilt. Her letters back to me would always dwell on how I was hurting her. It felt as though I was hurting her, but I persisted, supported by my fellow essays. I sent a lot of letters to Dad trying to establish a relationship. He never replied. I would visit him out of a sense of duty, hoping that some kind of relationship would develop. On one occasion while in essay, I attended a five-day healing of homosexuality workshop in Vancouver, B.C., led by Leanne Payne. One of the exercises we did was working on a healing of our relationships with Dad. I was riding high when I got home. With my valises still in hand, I saw that my answering machine was blinking. The message from my sister said that Dad was in Grant Hospital in a cirrhotic coma. I thought, God, when you act, you act. Dad did not live near this hospital, which was within walking distance. I walked over. Although he was in a large ward, no one was there. His swollen abdomen looked like a dome under a white sheet. I did for him what had been done for me. I placed my right hand on his chest and my left hand looking up to God. I said, God, come down and fill the hole left in my father by his father's not fathering him. Then I leaned over into his ear and whispered into his ear, Dad, I'm sorry for all the bad things I ever did to you. The wells around his eyes filled with moisture. I was sure he had heard me. A nurse, a week later, he was awake in the VA hospital in Hines, Illinois. 
Now my sister was present, as well as nurses, other patients, and visitors. I knew I had to ask his forgiveness in the waking state. I prayed, God, give me a break. Get these people out of here. Suddenly, they were gone. I acted quickly. Dad, do you remember our conversation when you were in the coma? I asked. He said, yes. I then asked sheepishly, well, what do you say? He said, I say, everything is okay, which meant I was forgiven. Not long afterward, he decided to stop drinking, though he never attended AA meetings. This was a miracle. I had never known him other than drunk. For the last remaining years of his life, we had a better relationship. With five years of sobriety behind me, I enrolled at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Foos, in 1992. I earned an MA in Theology and Christian Witness in 1996. While there, I 12-stepped many a young man with sex or SSA problems. I attended Monday and Thursday meetings. All through my life, I was to fall in love with various men. In sobriety, I did so twice, but the difference was that I worked it through. While at Foos, there was J.C., a straight guy of 32. I sublimated from my love for him. This means that I would always do what was good for him, not for me. I always have a strong desire to make such infatuations exclusive twosomes. It pained me to do so, but I took the stance, you are free to make friends with whomever you want. I have never broken this vow. Eventually, the infatuation vanished, and now we are intimate friends. He's in the program and has nine months of sobriety. We know absolutely everything about each other. I'll talk about the other infatuation later. While at Franciscan, I became acquainted with T.S., a very good-looking young man, 32 years old, against my 55. T.S. worked out at the gym and had a well-developed body. He began to stalk me. I tried to do my workout when I was sure he would not be there, only to find he was waiting for me on my way home. I haven't been sexually attractive to anyone for a long time. All my efforts had been in avoiding being attracted to others. I needed to bolster my resistance to being seduced. I developed an almost rude response to him. Although moving to St. Louis had meant severing ties with all my gay acquaintances, I had kept two of them, as they seemed to cut above the rest. When Christmas of my freshman year at Foos came, I wrote to TK, asking if I could stay with him. I would be no cost to him. I had a sleeping bag, I could sleep on the floor, and I could take my meals out. His reply was, no. I wrote back saying that he was in the habit of letting tricks, whom he absolutely did not know, spend the night with him. So his negative reply might as well serve as severing our friendship. That was January 1993. After my first year at Foos, I spent some time in a seminary. Seminaries hold to the policy, be friends with everyone, don't make particular friends. There was a good-looking straight fellow here, too, who wanted to be my friend. Although I was infatuated with him, I made a concerted effort not to sit with him at meals, but to sit at various tables. I was sent to a parish in California to help out. I would call A.S., the last gay friend I had, and tell him about life out there. I had heard how a bitchy queen could make things bad for you, so I had expressly cautioned A.S. not to tell anything I told him to any of my old gay crowd. He inadvertently let slip more than once that he was doing exactly that. 
So I had to write a letter to him, Severing Friendship, on July 2nd, 1994. I had been using the meditation book, God Calling, and it said, I can't work with you if you don't give me everything. So now I had given God all my gay friends. I began to make friends with straights. I had nothing in common with gays anymore. At some time while in SA, I checked myself into a monastery. I wanted some quiet time to do exercise in remaking the past. By now I had quite a few journals. I went over hurtful incidents and rewrote them as to how the other party or I should have handled them. Spiritual principles gained from SA. Get a sponsor. Call him when he says to do so. Follow his advice. I have seen, I'm departing from the script here, but I have seen that uh, oftentimes a person that's a sponsor is telling the sponsor what they're going to do. That's a, a wrong approach to it. Make two phone calls a day between meetings to people with over 30 days sobriety. The more sobriety, the better. Receiving them doesn't count. The tendency is to call only those who are as bad off as yourself. Big mistake. Speak up at meetings to the point of pain. You're as sick as your secrets. Loneliness is comparing this moment with some moment from the past and finding the past one better. I stay in the present moment. This was taught to me by a trick after my second lover left. Men work especially on forgiving dad. Women on mom. Your birth family is probably dysfunctional. Don't seek advice about important personal things from them. Keep it light. This is your functional family. Sexual addiction is a disease of feelings. Therefore, we need to monitor our feelings. Feelings are neutral. They just erupt. What we do as a result of their eruption marks the difference between virtue and vice. Sometimes painful feelings threaten to erupt, and we medicate by acting out to keep them down. This is why keeping a journal and talking about feelings at meetings and on the phone is so important. When we stop the acting out, the suppressed feelings are going to, to surface. This is when we need to talk, talk, talk. <clears throat> Your feelings are yours and mine are mine. One can never say, you hurt my feelings. We can only say, I chose to take offense at what you did. It's one day at a time, and if you have to, make it one hour at a time. The one-second rule. When I look at a man, I don't know what I'm doing for about one second. After that, I look away. Custody of the eyes. Set, a time, set aside a time for daily prayer, especially in the morning. Having a vague thought about God while showering or driving is good, but it won't suffice. When I worked, I would stop at 10 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. and quitting time and turn entirely to God for a few brief words of prayer, such as, Oh God, please keep me sober. Later in life, when I sat before a computer screen, I would set my timer for an hour, stop, look at something far away to rest my eyes or close them, and pray for a good three minutes. This also had the good effect of saving my eyesight. We say that there is a God-shaped hole in us and only God can fill it. In my faith, we have what's known as the Blessed Sacrament. We believe that Jesus is in the communion host. 
Some churches have a Eucharistic chapel where I can spend time before the Blessed Sacrament. I sit there and let Jesus heal me. It's like basking in the rays of a tanning light. I worked in a savage, brutal field, architecture. Some days I would feel so broken, so inadequate to deal with the coming day's backbiting, bitchiness, cruelty, and vanity that all I could do was to absorb God's healing. Other days I would concentrate on my love going out to him. I realize that SA is not a religious program, but it is impossible to turn this experience into something generic. All I can do is to encourage you to find some similar place to sit quietly to let the God of your understanding enter you as he did for me. Let God heal you in his role as father. Life will be worse for a few months after you stop acting out. That is why it's important to make calls and go to meetings. You're taking something out of your life. You need to put something in to take its place. Intimacy has nothing to do with sex. When I was in the lifestyle, I would come home from work, change into my cruising clothes, go back, go across the street to a park where public sex was going on and try to find sex. Sometimes I'd find it, but it was not satisfying. What I was really looking for was intimacy. Intimacy happens when I can tell you my most vulnerable feelings, beliefs and goals, and you listen attentively, and then we switch roles. I believe that God intended for us to have intimacy with each other, to deepen existing intimacies, and to establish new ones. I find intimacy by talking on the phone and being honest and sharing at meetings. We get mad when things don't go our way. That means I think I'm God. I used to model my reactions to crises on my mom's hysterical reactions. Sometimes God lets crises develop in my life. He has given me an opportunity to use my intellect to get out of a jam. To avoid resentments when things don't go my way, I always have a plan B in reserve. I'm willing to have a loving relationship with a man without sex. I don't see that happening, but I'm, I'm willing to let it happen. I've written my life out in, in, uh, in three books, and if anyone's interested in getting a copy, talk to me later. It's not program literature. And as you see me walking around between sessions, feel free to come up and ask me questions. Thank you. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the guidelines for sharing during this meeting. We do not crosstalk. That is, we share with the group as a whole rather than addressing any individual member. We speak in the I, not the we or the you. We leave our other identities at the door, including politics, religions, therapies, treatment centers, occupations, and other 12-step issues. We speak about and from the essay point of view. Our meetings focus on the essay approach to recovery, so whenever possible, we avoid the mention of titles and authors that are not essay-approved literature. We avoid profanity, sexual descriptions, and sexually abusive language. When sharing strays, we can remind each other of our commitment to these guidelines by quietly raising our hands. So the mic is open. Thank you. My name is Jamie. I'm a sexaholic. Um, been in the program like for seven weeks, I think. I uh, just got my mo one month uh, ship this week. It was awesome. Um, kind of identify myself with many things. Jerry, share um, um, abuse as a child, uh, 
abandoned father, father abandoned my mom when I was like four, maybe five, um, so many things. Bullying in school because I was not athletic, <laughs> uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, a lot of suffering, you know, that caused in my life. And uh, I cannot be in one place. <laughs> I've been all over, I think, almost all the states and done all kinds of jobs because I hate authority too. Um, um, I never share my same-sex same attraction, SSA, in a meeting because um, I've been to maybe 20 meetings now the last six weeks and never have shared it. And I'm scared to death to share it in the group. I don't know how it's going to be taken. Uh, I think it's the first time in the group acknowledging that. Uh, I thank SSA for everything. You know, I'm uh, learning a lot, I've been reading a lot, <laughs> a sponsor who has the same kind of job that I do, so that helps a lot. Uh, really, really nervous to be here talking to you, even though it doesn't look like because I work in public speaking, that's what I do. So I can camouflage, I guess, uh, my feelings hmm, and put a facade. Hmm. Looks like I'm calm, but I'm not. <laughs> but, uh, I thank for all the insights that Jerry gave us. I'm really happy to be here, and thank you for listening to me. Thanks, thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Hi, I'm Ben. I'm a sexaholic. Um, appreciate what was some of what we said, um, and uh, I, I'm not gay. I'm a sexaholic here, and rarely have I actually been attracted or lusted after men on the streets. It's not something I do. I, lust, I look at women most of the time. However, my disease has developed <coughs> over over a few years, and uh, what well, I t- tell you this: my my ways of acting out have been cross-dressing a lot of the time. I've been wearing women's clothes, going into women's rooms, into my sister's, anywhere I can find this, and going on the internet looking at these kind of sites and being shamed actually by women has been a form of my acting out. And uh, I thought I was homosexual. That's, that's what it got me to believe. And I actually, like you were saying, what we said before, um, I try to find ways uh, for treatment for homosexuality. I went to a weekend kind of retreat and realized that actually I don't like guys. (laughs) So I may be in the wrong place. But um, in fact, after that weekend, that's when I started liking guys. There was a guy there. So I actually went to this weekend for help for some homosexuality and ended up acting out homosexually with a guy from there after this weekend. This was about a year ago. Um... And since he's come up a few times in my fantasies, and uh, and and my lust in that direction has progressed. Um, I still want to identify myself. I'm not. I still want to identify myself as that, and I don't even like that. To be honest with you, if I'm, I'm so this program is about for me being honest, and for me, I don't like that. I don't like that lifestyle the way it is. It works for some people, it's fine, I'll accept them, it's, it's no problem. Um, so I'm, I'm actually in a very confused state. And uh, I will say this, that my, uh, 
and how much this relates to homosexuality or feeling gay, uh, but wanting to feel like a woman is coming to my fantasies. That's just where my disease takes me. It's not me. I can still say I'm a good and worthwhile person today, which is amazing. And I understand I have this disease, that that's, where it wants, that's what it wants to do. Um, and uh, I actually, I actually, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm still in early sobriety, so I can't really say much about living in the solution, but what is low, what is sober living in SA is, uh, that's what I'd like to understand more, what is sober living in SA. Um, by my understanding, in the white book, Roy K talks about um, that sober living is a, is, a, is a relationship between a man and a woman. And, uh, you know, my, my fantasies have progressed so far that that just doesn't really, for a long time, hasn't come into my realm. I mean, I've had relationships with girls, but not, you know, it's not intimately or sexually for quite a while now. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that's something I would like to understand more, so if anyone can, could share or this or talk to me after, it would be great. Thanks. My name is Doug. I'm from uh, Minneapolis, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Um, my sobriety date is uh, October of '99. Uh, when I came into the program, I was extremely broken—about 30 years of acting out anonymously with men. Um, for me, the uh, trying to live sober. Uh, also, I, I'm married, 45 years. Uh, uh, when I got into the program, for me, the, the, the the issues that that really came up for me at first were trying to figure out what my identity was, a lot of confusion about that, and eventually was able to settle that question by realizing my identity was that I'm a sexaholic, period. Let it go at that. Um, that that was my problem. I was a sexaholic. Um, how did I get sober? I got sober by going to a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings, got a sponsor, worked the steps, worked the steps, and work the steps. For me, the program's in the steps. You know, I, uh, I just, uh, I think I was fortunate. My first, uh, my, my home meeting for the first five years of my recovery was a program where the, the focus was on the big book, and we just read the big book over and over and over and over again. And so I'm a, a real, I'm a recovering sexaholic that's committed to the, to the program of working the steps. And that's where I found my recovery. My life today is totally different than it was before because what I also discovered was that my sexual acting out was not my problem. My problem was me and that the acting out was simply the symptom of my problem. And that as I worked the steps and uncovered who I was and how I dealt with life and uh, how my character defects were truly defects, except that beneath them they were really my gifts. And when I was able to turn those defects back into, as was mentioned last night by one of our speakers, um, back to what they were intended to be, um, I, I found a new way of living. And uh, 
excited about that and uh, uh, wish you all well. Thanks. I'm Lee from Atlanta. Hi, Lee. Sexaholic. Is that your story? Yes. Or is it? Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because I came in late. So, okay. Uh, we, um, last, last Saturday morning, we had a speaker meeting, and um, they talked about, the guy talked about loving himself, that he was never able to love himself, and how um, that was really the, the start to his uh, healing. Um, and he didn't have any. He went to SSA, but it definitely um, it definitely uh, brought attention to myself because uh, for all these years I haven't loved myself. Um, so, uh, so for this year, um, I need to find ways of loving myself in positive ways, and love myself uh, by acting out SSA. Uh, that's not loving myself. So uh, I just wanted to. To share that, that uh, I never knew that that was really an aspect and uh, of, of maybe this issue, because uh, I'm a, I expect to get love from other men and that ain't gonna happen. Um, so, but uh, I guess that's all I want to share. Thank you. Hi, my name's Cruz, sexaholic. Um, I've been married, if we may stay married uh, this year, we'll be married 15 years. Um, I've always acted out um, since, I, since I could remember with, with boys and when I was younger and then men. The solution for me has been, uh, one has been my sponsor. Because one of my roots... Uh, issues as I I never had any male friends or boyfriends because I always had sex with them <laughs> I, I never could form a relationship a non-sexual relationship with another male either when I was a, a child or even even now so my uh, sobriety has come in forming a healthy relationships with with other men within the group and it, it's hard it, it really is hard. I don't know why, um, but uh, there's something within me that's it's hard for me to make friendships. But in recovery, uh, especially with same-sex lust, that's that's been the solution for me. Um, going up to someone that knows my issues, you know, um, and then saying and then forming a relationship with them. And especially with my sponsor. And I, I like what the last speaker said about loving self because that's been an uh, issue for me too. And in my fourth step, I realized that the person I resented the most was me. And that the person and the reason I hated myself was because I felt defective. And so in, uh, when I was doing my step eight, I was going to put myself at the end of the amends list. Because I, I, I want to make amends to everyone else. And my sponsor, and this was a shocker, said, put yourself first. And that was, like, weird. <laughs> it was like speaking Martian. So I, I am loving myself. 
um, loving myself by telling me I'm, I'm making a mistake. I make mistakes. I'm not a mistake. Um, and then in, in the sober living, I still have the thoughts. I still have the fantasies. But one thing, too, is my wife is aware of my issues. And so, um, and one thing is also acting as if, uh, which is one of the program slogans has, has helped me. And, and again, just loving myself, loving my wife, loving my children, and then taking the hard steps in making friendships. I don't like to make friendships because friendships are ugly. They can get ugly when you mess with people's lives or you get together, you know. And so I just need to let go and, and to trust God. So, thanks. I'm Bob, and I am a sexaholic uh, from uh, Pittsburgh. Um, uh, SSA attraction uh, has been in my life, uh, I don't know, since I was 10, maybe. I'm 60, so 50 years. Um, and uh, But I've been married 40 of those 60 years. Um, and uh, my wife's still with me, which in and of itself is uh, a miracle. Um, and she knows um, about um, my SSA attraction. Um, she doesn't know all the gory details, but um, she has an imagination. I'm sure she can uh, piece things together. Um, I basically spent a lot of hours um, on the Internet looking at porn, um, and uh, and then going to adult bookstores and um, acting out anonymously. Um, during this period, I'd have sex with women as well. But um, and uh, and loving yourself has has been mentioned uh, is one of my uh, key problems. I mean, I believe that God's forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven me. Um, and uh, I had eight months of sobriety and uh, just recently fell, um, uh, and uh, it's been tough. It's been very tough. Um, I, I was cruising along, thinking I was doing so well, and uh, and um, but still, not loving myself still gave me this emptiness inside, and uh, um. And uh, the only way I could uh, fill that for the last 50 years has been by by uh, medicating. And uh, that means porn and uh, acting out with men. So um, although I was uh, off the wagon for two days, I was on the Internet a lot of that period of time and also uh, went to an adult bookstore. Um, so it's dangerous stuff. Um Cunning is uh, is exactly what my lust is, and uh, um, and you have to be vigilant. I have to be vigilant. Um, I got I have to get down on my knees twice a day, and um, and I have to take fantasy and get it out of my life completely. Because um, a month before I fell, I was fantasizing um, at night, and. Um, and uh, that's just uh, dangerous territory, dangerous territory for me, um, because um, 
and I went back and I read step zero. You have to stop. Um, and for me, that means stop fantasizing. Stop taking those hits. Um, because otherwise, it just is not going to work. Um, reading the material, working the steps, doing all the rest of it, the first thing I have to do is just stop. Um, and and that's where I'm at now. And uh, thanks. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm a psychologist from Gainesville. Um, just like to thank all the earlier shares for uh, really telling my story to me, um, seeing what I can be. Um, I've been married ten years. Um, my disease took me to SSA. Um, I remember exactly when it was. Um, my wife knows exactly when it was. I told her at the time. And uh, she dealt with it. Um, since I've been in recovery, that's probably been the hardest area to repair. Um, being sober for me, much like an alcoholic, can stay away from alcohol. I can keep myself off the computer. Or God can keep me off the computer. Um, well, I can probably keep myself off the computer, but the things that play in my mind, um, the SSA stuff is absolutely the hardest part of my addiction to uh, shake. And uh, certainly the irony of my dad passing away um, just before that began is not lost to me. Um and uh, as I start to work the steps, um, and what I'm hearing reinforced in this room is that uh, the intimacy that, um, particularly with the intimacy of sponsor-sponsee relationships, the intimacy of group relationships um, with other men uh, fills that void that I was trying to fill. Um, the intimacy with God as well fills that void that I was trying to fill with my acting out. So um, I'm grateful that, like some other shares, I, I don't identify as gay. I don't feel bombarded by lust from the outside world as far as SSA stuff goes. It's all in my head. Um, and I think oh, all of us can probably understand that a lot of times that's... <laughs> Those things that are already inside of us um, are way more powerful than anything else that's coming in. So, thanks for letting me share. Hi, my name is Eric. Hi, Eric. 
grateful member of Sexaholics Anonymous. Um, I uh, my story is a little different, but I just wanted to put in my two cents worth here. Uh, I came into SA back in 1992 because I started lusting after men. That that was something I was I was 29 years old when that when that started for me and. Um, if I look back over how I grew up, I mean, it's a miracle that I didn't find someone that would that would have taken me in and abused me. I mean, it's a miracle that that didn't happen. I was a setup for that, but I don't believe it happened. If it did, it happened so early in my life, I can't remember it. Um, but I... It happened to me in um, another 12-step program. I was going to AA and NA, and I'd gotten into there about four years earlier. 1990, yeah, about four years earlier. In 1988, I got into AA and NA, and um, I, gravitate, I gravitated towards people who accepted me and, and liked me just as I was, and those people happened to be people who were acting out in, in that lifestyle or wanted to. And um, I didn't really, I was a very naive person. I wasn't someone who knew a lot about same-sex lifestyle or, or anything. I was never introduced to it. Um, but these people were doing that type of thing. And I really, at the time, now looking back, I could see that those people were lusting after me. I never forget once I went to a, they, they went to these people, that I hung out with, they invited me to church with them. And it was a New Age church. Now, I wasn't, I'm not a very religious person from the get-go. I was raised a certain way and raised Lutheran, but I, I wasn't very religious or very active in religious activities in NA or AA, nor am I now. But I remember they took me to church with them, and then after church they asked me if I wanted to go to a bookstore with them. And I still didn't get it. You know, I just politely declined. I thought it a little strange that right after church they wanted to go to a bookstore, and I just um, I just went home. But the what I guess what happened to me was there's a codependent thing going on with me. It's when I make friends with people and I develop close attachments to males, then it's almost like if they start lusting after him. One of the, one of the guys told me he fell in love with me. Um, uh, the other guys were always making sexual jokes around me. One of them happened to be my sponsor, the same guy that said he fell in love with me. I remember a few times sharing lust temptations. It's before I was in alcoholics, I mean before I was in SA. And um, he would make sexual comments to me and ask me if I wanted to have sex and would comment on my body at times. And I really didn't know that that was inappropriate or that I could say something about that. I understand what women feel like in that situation at times, and that what women may feel like in terms of being uncomfortable, but not knowing what to do about it and feeling responsible for that, that somehow I must have done something to, to bring this on, and therefore this is how I am. Well, I don't, under, I don't understand this stuff at all for myself, but I, I believe that somewhere along the line I internalized all this. And this happened before, too. I'd been picked up many times by men and propositioned as younger than that when i was going in college i had one of my one of one of my friends in college one of my drug friends told me that everyone at the the um the, the campus or whatever thought i was gay 
And um, he took me on a, a camping trip once, and um, we did LSD, and then he said part of that was to, to take all our clothes off. I mean, again, I was very, even though, I, and I wouldn't sleep in the tent with the guy because I didn't feel safe, but it was that kind of stuff that went on over and over and over in my life, you know, hitchhiking, people picking me up. And so I, somehow I internalized this, and in the 1992, I started lusting after a best friend of mine. I don't know where it came from, and um, I couldn't get it out of my mind. You know, I just knew, and that's how I ended up here, I just knew that if I didn't, if I didn't deal with this, that I was going to do something about it. And so that's when I came into SA, because I was scared that I was going to start acting out with men, that I was going to start um, cruising. I re- it just I knew that that was going to eventually happen um, with all this, with, with all these things. And I guess the last part, the, the thing was, my sponsor in AA told me that he loved me. And that was about the end of it. Also, I need to share that when I was with women before this, I was always unable to sexually perform. And so I had this thing about performing as well. So I, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened, but I, that's how I got in here. I can tell you this, that I really think, and I got in here in 92 and got sober in 1994 as a single man and stayed sober as a single man until 2002 when I met, when I started dating my girlfriend, who's now my wife. But I can tell you, during that time period, I believe something happened to me in SA, and I, I think some of you all alluded to that already. I mean, you would think, you know, well, to really get that out of me or to change that part of my orientation, because I was going to therapists and stuff that were telling me to go ahead and act out on it, and in AA and NA, they were pretty much saying that either they were trying to have sex with me, encouraging me to do it, or they were running to the hills. They didn't want to hear this type of thing. But I knew somehow in SA, and I didn't really have any problems. I felt bad about it, and that I'd had same-sex attraction, and I lusted after men, and that stuff went through my mind. One of my fantasies was being raped by men. I mean, that was a that was one of the most powerful fantasies I had. I wanted to, to go to a bar, pick up a whole bunch of guys, and have them rape me. I mean, and, it, and consciously, it didn't seem like the right thing to do. But if I was in lust, that would have been something that I wanted to do. And um, I could just tell you that um, I really believe, and I don't really, I don't know what's happened. I just came here to share this experience. I don't come to these things very, what, am I, am I done? Okay, I'm sorry about that. I didn't realize. Okay. All I want to say is I think running with people, running with males in S.A. and just hanging around males in S.A., it's done something for me. I mean, I did a lot of service work. I've just dove into the program, I continue to do that, and I just, I don't have the same issues. Any, I don't, I guess I could, I could, and um, I think sometimes if men are lusting after me, that's another, that, that's something that's, 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 that's difficult for me if I'm having conversations with people, is to just say, I don't feel comfortable right now, I feel like someone's lusting after me, you know, and being able to say no to that and shutting that off. I go to another 12-step program to sort of deal with that that has to do with the non-issues, because I'm so codependent. In that way. Anyway, I just wanted to share that experience. Thanks. Thanks,
We have about six minutes left. Does anybody have any questions about my story? Could you speak it into the mic? Um, you made a comment I wrote down and made a reference that I chose to take offense to what you did versus you hurt my feelings. Um, I would just like a little more uh, understanding about that because that was pretty good. I mean, I've, I've never heard it put that way before. Thank you. Well, growing up in the house that I did with a mother that made me responsible for her feelings, uh, I wa my feelings in her was like, a sieve full of white spaghetti mixed with red spaghetti, all intermixed. And I had to separate that stuff out in the program. And that's why I said that it, it, it hurt me to, to do that with mom. But by leaning on the people around me in the program, they said, Jerry, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. Your mom had no right to, to make you like a slave to her feelings. So uh, that's what I realized. You know, your feelings are yours, mine are mine. It's as though we had a cast iron capsule around ourselves. Your feelings don't transform into me and mine don't transform into you. How many times has someone done something that's even hurtful and you said to myself, I'm not going to let myself be hurt by that. Well, that means I got control of my feelings. Uh, it's, a, it's an exercise in self-love when someone lets themselves get hurt by someone else's feelings. Now, I grant you, you might have a very bad week. <clears throat> Everything has happened. <clears throat> and finally, so-and-so does this thing and you give in to it. I can't blame you for doing that, but all things being equal, I'm in control of my feelings. I have the ability to say, I'm not going to get hurt by that. And, uh, and talk it out with people in the program. Feelings can be changed, too. That's another thing. Uh, I find that... Um, we're, we're a creature composed of a body and a soul, not just a soul. In order to change a feeling, I've got to involve my body somehow. Like, for instance, let's say I'm sitting at home feeling lonely. <clears throat> Pure exercise of willpower ooh, isn't going to make me not lonely. I've got to drag my body out to a meeting, perhaps, talk to people about my feelings, or pick up the phone and talk to someone about feelings. I had a sponsee one time that could never get to this point. He would... <laughs> Constantly divert the attention to some theoretical point, you know, what, how's world peace going and stuff like that. That has nothing to do with your feelings. We got to deal with our own feelings. This is a disease of feelings. We, there's feelings stuffed in each one of us. It, our feelings are like an onion. You've got a feeling going on in you about this very room. How do you feel now about being here? I'm not asking you. I don't care. I mean... But then you get a feeling about what you're going to do later. You get a feeling about what you're going to do when you get home. You get a feeling about your wife or whatever. Uh, they're all in there like an onion. And by talking on the phone or talking to a sponsor or anybody in the program about your feelings, you get them out there and you find out what are the hurtful ones. And you find a way to, to deal with the hurtful ones in a creative way rather than a destructive way. So my mom was always, everything hurt her feelings. And everybody was tippy-toeing on eggshells around mom. I have two sisters, and they think my mother is a mixture of the Blessed Virgin and Joan of Arc. I mean, they just think she's, whoa, wow, you know, mom can't do anything wrong. Well, I have a more balanced view of mom. She, she had her good points, no question. I should, by the way, I don't want to, I have forgiven my parents. I've put myself in their shoes, and I, you know, we all go for what we think is good in life. 
And my mother was a desperate, uh, very desperate woman. And her grabbing me for like her lifesaver, from her point of view, that made perfectly good sense. And my father, he was anti-authoritarian too. I mean, he was always, he loved to break traffic laws and things like that. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm really wandering here. <laughs> did I, in somewhere of all of that, did I answer your question? Okay, thanks. And uh, <clears throat> we got about two minutes left. So anybody else got a, uh, want to make a comment? Would you? No. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I came here <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anything you have heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. And if we all could join hands, try to make a circle, and say the Lord's Prayer. Whose father? Our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.